Chapter One of Mrs. Skaggs, Husbands, and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Bulka. Mrs. Skaggs, Husbands, and Other Stories by Bret Hart. Chapter One. Part One. West. The sun was rising in the foothills, but for an hour the black mass of Sierra eastward of Angels had been outlined with fire, and the conventional morning had come two hours before with the down coach from Placerville. The dry, cold, dewless California night still lingered in the long canyons and folded skirts of Table Mountain. Even on the mountain road the air was still sharp and that urgent necessity for something to keep out the chill which sent the barkeeper sleepily along his bottles and wine-glasses at the station obtained all along the road perhaps it might be said that the first stir of life was in the bar-rooms a few birds twittered in the sycamores at the roadside but long before that glasses had clicked and bottles gurgled in the saloon of the mansion-house this was still lit by a dissipated-looking hanging lamp, which was evidently the worse for having been up all night, and bore a singular resemblance to a faded reveller of angels, who even then sputtered and flickered in his socket in the armchair below it, a resemblance so plain that when the first level sunbeam pierced the window-pane, the barkeeper, moved by a sentiment of consistency and compassion, put them both out together. Then the sun came up haughtily. When it had passed the eastern ridge it began, after its habit, to lord it over angels, sending the thermometer up twenty degrees in as many minutes, driving the mules to the sparse shade of corrals and fences, making the red dust incandescent, and renewing its old imperious aggression on the spiked bosses of the convex shield of pines that defended Table Mountain. Thither, by nine o'clock, all coolness had retreated, and the outsides of the upstage plunged their hot faces in its aromatic shadows as in water. It was the custom of the driver of the Wingdom coach to whip up his horses and enter angels at that remarkable pace which the woodcuts in the hotel bar-room represented to credulous humanity as the usual rate of speed of that conveyance. At such times the habitual expression of disdainful reticence and lazy official severity which he wore on the box became intensified as the loungers gathered about the vehicle, and only the boldest ventured to address him. It was the Honorable Judge B. Swinger, member of assembly, who today presumed, perhaps rashly, on the strength of his official position. "'Any political news from below, Bill?' he asked, as the latter slowly descended from his lofty perch, without, however, any perceptible coming down of mien or manner. "'Not much,' said Bill, with deliberate gravity. "'The President of the United States hasn't been himself since you refused that seat in the Cabinet, the general feeling in political circles is one of regret. Irony, even of this outrageous quality, was too common in angels to excite either a smile or a frown. 
Bill slowly entered the barroom during a dry, dead silence in which only a faint spirit of emulation survived. "'You didn't bring up that agent of Rothschild's this trip?' asked the barkeeper, slowly, by way of vague contribution to the prevailing tone of conversation. "'No,' responded Bill, with thoughtful exactitude. "'He said he couldn't look into that claim of Johnson's without first consulting the Bank of England.' The Mr. Johnson here alluded to, being present as the faded reveller the barkeeper had lately put out, and as the alleged claim notoriously possessed no attractions whatever to capitalists, expectation naturally looked to him for some response to this evident challenge. He did so by simply stating that he would take sugar in his, and by walking unsteadily toward the bar, as if accepting a festive invitation. To the credit of Bill, be it recorded that he did not attempt to correct the mistake, but gravely touched glasses with him, and, after saying, Here's another nail in your coffin, a cheerful sentiment, to which, And a hair all off your head, was plainly added by the others, he threw off his liquor with a single dexterous movement of head and elbow, and stood refreshed. Hello, old Major, said Bill suddenly setting down his glass are you there it was a boy who becoming bashfully conscious that this epithet was addressed to him retreated sideways to the doorway where he stood beating his hat against the doorpost with an assumption of indifference that his downcast but mirthful dark eyes and reddening cheek scarcely bore out perhaps it was owing to his size perhaps it was to a certain cherubic outline of face and figure, perhaps to a peculiar trustfulness of expression, that he did not look half his age, which was really fourteen. Everybody in Angels knew the boy, either under the venerable title bestowed by Bill, or as Tom Islington, after his adopted father. His was a familiar presence in the settlement, and the theme of much local criticism and comment. His waywardness, indolence, and unaccountable amiability, a quality at once suspicious and gratuitous in a pioneer community like Angel's, had often been the subject of fierce discussion. A large and reputable majority believed him destined for the gallows. A minority, not quite so reputable, enjoyed his presence without troubling themselves much about his future. To one or two, the evil predictions of a majority possessed neither novelty nor terror. "'Anything for me, Bill?' asked the boy, half mechanically, with the air of repeating some jocular formulary perfectly understood by Bill. "'Anything for you?' echoed Bill, with an overacted severity equally well understood by Tommy. "'Anything for you? No! And it's my opinion there won't be anything for you, as long as you hang around bar rooms and spend your valuable time with loafers and bummers. Git! The reproof was accompanied by a suitable exaggeration of gesture. Bill had seized a decanter, before which the boy retreated still good-humoredly. Bill followed him to the door. Dern my skin, if he hasn't gone off with that bummer Johnson, he added as he looked down the road. What's he expecting, Bill? asked the barkeeper. A letter from his aunt. Reckon he'll have to take it out in inspectin'. Likely they're glad to get shut of him. He's leading a shiftless, idle life here, 
interposed the member of Assembly. "'Well,' said Bill, who never allowed anyone but himself to abuse his protégé, "'seeing he ain't expecting no office from the hands of an enlightened constituency, it is rather a shiftless life.' After delivering this Parthian arrow with a gratuitous twanging of the bow to indicate its offensive personality, Bill winked at the barkeeper slowly resumed a pair of immense bulgy buckskin gloves which gave his fingers the appearance of being painfully sore and bandaged strode to the door without looking at anyone called out all aboard with a perfunctory air of supreme indifference whether the invitation was heeded remounted his box and drove stolidly away perhaps it was well that he did so for the conversation at once assumed a disrespectful attitude towards Tom and his relatives. It was more than intimated that Tom's alleged aunt was none other than Tom's real mother, while it was also asserted that Tom's alleged uncle did not himself participate in this intimate relationship to the boy to an extent which the fastidious taste of angels deemed moral and necessary. Popular opinion also believed that Islington, the adopted father, who received a certain stipend ostensibly for the boy's support, retained it as a reward for his reticence regarding these facts. "'He ain't ruining himself by wasting it on Tom,' said the barkeeper, who possibly possessed positive knowledge of much of Islington's disbursements. But at this point exhausted nature languished among some of the debaters, and he turned from the frivolity of conversation to his severer professional duties." it was also well that bill's momentary attitude of didactic propriety was not further excited by the subsequent conduct of his protege for by this time tom half supporting the unstable johnson who developed a tendency to occasionally dash across the glaring road but checked himself midway each time reached the corral which adjoined the mansion house at its farther extremity was a pump and horse truck here without a word being spoken but evidently in obedience to some habitual custom tom led his companion with the boy's assistance johnson removed his coat and neckcloth turned back the collar of his shirt and gravely placed his head beneath the pump spout with equal gravity and deliberation tom took his place at the handle for a few moments only the splashing of water and regular strokes of the pump broke the solemnly ludicrous silence then there was a pause in which johnson put his hands to his dripping head felt of it critically as if it belonged to somebody else and raised his eyes to his companion that ought to fetch it said tom in answer to the look if it don't replied johnson doggedly with an air of relieving himself of all further responsibility in the matter it's got to that's all if it referred to some change in the physiognomy of johnson it had probably been fetched by the process just indicated the head that went under the pump was large and clothed with bushy uncertain colored hair the face was flushed puffy and expressionless the eyes injected and full the head that came out from under the pump was of smaller size and different shape the hair straight dark and sleek the face pale and hollow-cheeked the eyes bright and restless in the haggard nervous ascetic that rose from the horse trough 
there was very little trace of the Bacchus that had bowed there a moment before. Familiar as Tom must have been with the spectacle, he could not help looking inquiringly at the trough, as if expecting to see some traces of the previous Johnson in its shallow depths. A narrow strip of willow, alder, and buckeye, a mere dusty raveled fringe of the green mantle that swept the high shoulders of Table Mountain, lapped the edge of the corral. The silent pair were quick to avail themselves of even its scant shelter from the overpowering sun. They had not proceeded far before Johnson, who was walking quite rapidly in advance, suddenly brought himself up and turned to his companion with an interrogative, Eh? I didn't speak, said Tommy quietly. Who said you spoke? said Johnson, with a quick look of cunning. In course you didn't speak, and I didn't speak neither. Nobody spoke. What makes you think you spoke? he continued, peering curiously into Tommy's eyes. The smile which habitually shone there quickly vanished as the boy stepped quietly to his companion's side and took his arm without a word. In course you didn't speak, Tommy, said Johnson, deprecatingly. You ain't a boy to go for to play an old soaker like me. That's what I like you for. That's what I seed in you from the first, I says. That ere boy ain't going to play you, Johnson. You can go your whole pile on him, when you can't trust even a barkeep. That's what I said, eh? This time, Tommy prudently took no notice of the interrogation, and Johnson went on. If I was to ask you another question, you wouldn't go to play me neither, would you, Tommy? No, said the boy. If I was to ask you, continued Johnson, without heeding the reply, but with a growing anxiety of eye and a nervous twitching of his lips, if I was to ask you, for instance, if that was a jackass rabbit that just passed, eh? You say it was or was not, as the case may be. You wouldn't play the old man on that. No, said Tommy quietly. It was a jackass rabbit. If I was to ask you, continued Johnson, if it were, say, for instance, a green hat with yellow ribbons, you wouldn't play me and say it did, unless, he added with intensified cunning, unless it did. No, said Tommy. Of course I wouldn't. But then, you see, it did. It did? It did, repeated Tommy stoutly. A green hat with yellow ribbons, and, and, a red rosette. I didn't get to see the rosette, said Johnson, with slow and conscientious deliberation, yet with an evident sense of relief. But that ain't saying it weren't there, you know, eh? Tommy glanced quietly at his companion. There were great beads of perspiration on his ashen-gray forehead, and on the ends of his lank hair. The hand, which twitched spasmodically in his, was cold and clammy. The other, which was free, had a vague, purposeless, jerky activity, as if attached to some deranged mechanism. Without any apparent concern in these phenomena, Tommy halted, and seating himself on a log, motioned his companion to a place beside him. Johnson obeyed without a word. Slight as was the act, perhaps no other incident of their singular companionship indicated as completely the dominance of this careless, half-effeminate, 
but self-possessed boy over this doggedly self-willed, abnormally excited man. "'It ain't the square thing,' <laughs> said Johnson, after a pause, with a laugh that was neither mirthful nor musical, and frightened away a lizard that had been regarding the pair with breathless suspense. "'It ain't the square thing for jackass rabbits to wear hats, Tommy. Is it, eh?' "'Well,' said Tommy, with unmoved composure, "'sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. "'Animals are mighty queer.' "'And here Tommy went off in an animated, "'but I regret to say utterly untruthful "'and untrustworthy account "'of the habits of California fauna, "'until he was interrupted by Johnson. "'And snakes, eh, Tommy?' said the man, "'with an abstracted air, "'gazing intently on the ground before him. "'And snakes,' said Tommy. "'But they don't bite, at least not the kind you see. "'There, don't move, Uncle Ben. Don't move. Uh, "'They're gone now, and it's about time you took your dose.' "'Johnson had hurriedly risen as if to leap upon the log, "'but Tommy had as quickly caught his arm with one hand "'while he drew a bottle from his pocket with the other. "'Johnson paused and eyed the bottle. "'If you say so, my boy,' he faltered, as his fingers closed nervously around it. Say when, then. He raised the bottle to his lips and took a long draught, the boy regarding him critically. When, said Tommy suddenly. Johnson started, flushed, and returned the bottle quickly. But the color that had risen to his cheek stayed there. His eye grew less restless, and as they moved away again, the hand that rested on Tommy's shoulder was steadier. Their way lay along the flank of Table Mountain, a wandering trail through a tangled solitude that might have seemed virgin and unbroken but for a few oyster cans, yeast powder tins, and empty bottles that had been apparently stranded by the first low wash of pioneer waves. On the ragged trunk of an enormous pine hung a few tufts of gray hair caught from a passing grizzly, but in strange juxtaposition at its foot lay an empty bottle of incomparable bitters, the chef d'oeuvre of a hygienic civilization, emblazoned with the arms of an all-healing republic. The head of a rattlesnake peered from a case that had contained tobacco, which was still brightly placarded with the highly colored effigy of a popular dacez. And a little beyond this the soil was broken and fissured. There was a confused mass of roughly hewn timber a straggling line of sluicing, a heap of gravel and dirt, a rude cabin, and the claim of Johnson. Except for the rudest purposes of shelter from rain and cold, the cabin possessed but little advantage over the simple savagery of surrounding nature. It had all the practical directness of the habitation of some animal, without its comfort or picturesque quality. The very birds that haunted it for food must have felt their own superiority as architects. It was inconceivably dirty, even with its scant capacity for accretion. It was singularly stale, even in its newness and freshness of material. Unspeakably dreary, as it was in shadow, the sunlight visited it in a blind, aching, purposeless way, as if despairing of mellowing its outlines or of even tanning it into color. The claim worked by Johnson in his intervals of sobriety was represented by half a dozen rude openings in the mountainside, 
with the heaped-up debris of rock and gravel before the mouth of each. They gave very little evidence of engineering skill or constructive purpose, or indeed showed anything but the vague, successively abandoned essays of their projector. Today they served another purpose, for as the sun had heated the little cabin almost to the point of combustion, curling up the long dry shingles, and starting aromatic tears from the green pine beams. Tommy led Johnson into one of the larger openings, and with a sense of satisfaction threw himself panting upon its rocky floor. Here and there the grateful dampness was condensed in quiet pools of water, or in a monotonous and soothing drip from the rocks above. Without lay the staring sunlight, colorless, clarified, intense. For a few moments they lay resting on their elbows in blissful contemplation of the heat they had escaped. "'What do you say?' said Johnson, slowly, without looking at his companion, but abstractly addressing himself to the landscape beyond. "'What, what do you say to two straight games for one thousand dollars?' "'Make it five thousand, replied Tommy, reflectively, also to the landscape. "'And I'm in.' "'What do I owe you now?' said Johnson, after a lengthened silence. "'One hundred and seventy-five thousand two hundred and fifty dollars,' replied Tommy, with business-like gravity. "'Well,' said Johnson, after a deliberation commensurate with the magnitude of the transaction, "'if you win, call it a hundred and eighty thousand round. Where's the curds?' They were in an old tin box in a crevice of a rock above his head. They were greasy and worn with service. Johnson dealt, albeit his right hand was still uncertain, hovering, after dropping the cards, aimlessly about Tommy, and being only recalled by a strong nervous effort. Yet, notwithstanding this incapacity for even honest manipulation, Mr. Johnson covertly turned a knave from the bottom of the pack with such shameless inefficiency and gratuitous unskillfulness that even Tommy was obliged to cough and look elsewhere to hide his embarrassment. Possibly for this reason the young gentleman was himself constrained, by way of correction, to add a valuable card to his own hand, over and above the number he legitimately held. Nevertheless, the game was unexciting, and dragged listlessly. Johnson won. He recorded the fact and the amount with a stub of pencil and shaking fingers in wandering hieroglyphics all over a pocket diary. Then there was a long pause, when Johnson slowly drew something from his pocket and held it up before his companion. It was apparently a dull red stone. F, said Johnson, slowly, with his old look of simple cunning. If you happen to pick up such a rock as that, tommy what might you say it was don't know said tommy mightn't you say continued johnson cautiously that it was gold or silver neither said tommy promptly mightn't you say it was quicksilver mightn't you say that if there were a friend of yourn as knew where to go and turn out ten ton of it a day and every ton worth two thousand dollars, that he had a soft thing 
a very soft thing, allowing Tommy that you use such language, which you don't. But, said the boy, coming to the point with great directness, do you know where to get it? Have you struck it, Uncle Ben? Johnson looked carefully around. I have, Tommy. Listen, I know where there's cartloads of it, but there's only one other specimen, the mate to this here, that's above ground, and that's in Frisco. There's an agent coming up in a day or two to look into it. I sent for him, eh? His bright, restless eyes were concentrated on Tommy's face now, but the boy showed neither surprise nor interest. Least of all did he betray any recollection of Bill's ironical and gratuitous corroboration of this part of the story. "'Nobody knows it,' continued Johnson, in a nervous whisper. "'Nobody knows it but you and an agent in Frisco. The boys work around here, passes by, and sees the old man grubbing away, and no signs of color, not even rotten quartz. The boys loafing round the mansion house sees the old man lying round free in bar rooms, and they laughs and says, played out, and specs nothing. Maybe you think to expect something now, eh? Queried Johnson suddenly with a sharp look of suspicion. Tommy looked up, shook his head, threw a stone at a passing rabbit, but did not reply. When I first set eyes on you, Tommy continued Johnson, apparently reassured. The first day you came and pumped for me, an entire stranger, and have a no call to do it, I says, Johnson, Johnson, says I, here's a boy you can trust. Here's a boy that won't play you. Here's a chap that's white and square. White and square, Tommy. Them's the very words I used. He paused for a moment and then went on in a confidential whisper. "'You want capital, Johnson,' says I, "'to develop your resources, and you want a partner. Capital you can send for. But your partner, Johnson? Your partner is right here, and his name, it is Tommy Islington. Them's the very words I used.' He stopped and chafed his clammy hands upon his knees. It's six months ago since I made you my partner. There ain't a lick I've struck since then, Tommy. There ain't a handful of earth I've washed. There ain't a shovelful of rock I've turned over, but I thought of you. Share and share alike, says I. When I wrote to my agent, I wrote equal for my partner, Tommy Islington. He have a no call to know if the same was man or boy. He had moved nearer the boy, and would perhaps have laid his hand caressingly upon him, but even in his manifest affection there was a singular element of awed restraint and even fear, a suggestion of something withheld even his fullest confidences, a hopeless perception of some vague barrier that never could be surmounted. He may have been at times dimly conscious that in the eyes which Tommy raised to his there was thorough intellectual appreciation critical good humor, even feminine softness, but nothing more. His nervousness somewhat heightened by his embarrassment, he went on with an attempt at calmness which his twitching white lips and unsteady fingers made pathetically grotesque. 
there's a bill of sale in my bunk, made out according to law, of an equal undivided half of the claim, and the consideration is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, gambling debts, gambling debts from me to you, Tommy, you understand? Nothing could exceed the intense cunning of his eye at this moment. And then there's a will. A will? said Tommy, in amused surprise. Johnson looked frightened. Eh? he said hurriedly. What will? Who said anything about a will, Tommy? Nobody, replied Tommy, with unblushing calm. Johnson passed his hand over his cold forehead, wrung the damp ends of his hair with his fingers, and went on. Times when I'm took bad, as it was today, the boys about here says, you says maybe, Tommy, it's whiskey. It ain't, Tommy. It's poison. Quicksilver poison. That's what the matter with me. I'm salviated. Salviated with mercury. I heard of it before, continued Johnson, appealing to the boy. And as a boy of promiscuous reading, I reckon you have too. Them men as works in Cinnabar sooner or later get salviated. It's bound to fetch him some time. Salviated by mercury. What are you going to do for it? asked Tommy. When the agent comes up, and I begins to realize in this here mine, said Johnson, contemplatively, I goes to New York. I says to the barkeeper of the hotel, Show me the biggest doctor here. He shows me. I says to him, salivated by mercury, a year standing, how much? He says, five thousand dollars. I take two of these pills at bedtime, and an equal number of powders at meals, and come back in a week. And I goes back in a week, cured, and signed the certificate to that effect. Encouraged by a look of interest in Tommy's eye, he went on. So I gets cured, and I goes to the barkeep. And I says, show me the biggest fashion-blessed house that's for sale here. And he says, the biggest naturally belongs to John Jacob Baster. And I says, show him. And he shows him. And I says, what might you ask for this here house? And he looks at me scornful and says, go away, old man. You must be sick. And I fetches him one over the left eye. And he apologizes. And I gives him his own price for the house. I stocks that house with mahogany furniture and provisions. And thar we lives. You and me, Tommy. You and me. The sun no longer shone upon the hillside. The shadows of the pines were beginning to creep over Johnson's claim, and the air within the cavern was growing chill. In the gathering darkness his eyes shone brightly as he went on. Then there comes a day when we gives a big spread. We invite governors, members of Congress, gentlemen of fashion, and the like. And among them, I invite a man as holds his head very high, a man I once knew. But he doesn't know I knows him, and he doesn't remember me. And he comes and he sits opposite me, and I watches him. And he's very airy, this man, and very chipper. And he wipes his mouth with a white handkerchief. And he smiles, and he catches my eye, and he says, 
a glass of wine with you, Mr. Johnson. And he fills his glass, and I fills mine, and we rises. And I he's that wine, glass and all, right in his damn grinning face. And he jumps for me, for he is very game, this man, very game. But some of them grabs me. And he says, who be you? And I says, Skaggs, damn you, Skaggs, look at me. Give me back my wife and child. Give me back the money you stole. Give me back the good name you took away. Give me back the health you ruined. Give me back the last twelve years. Give them to me, damn you, quick, before I cut your heart out. And naturally, Tommy, he can't do it. And so I cuts his heart out, my boy. I cuts his heart out. The purely animal fury of his eye suddenly changed to cunning. You think they hangs me for it, Tommy, but they don't. Not much, Tommy. I goes to the biggest lawyer there, and I says to him, Salviated by Mercury. You hear me? Salviated by Mercury. And he winks at me, and he goes to the judge, and he says, This here unfortunate man isn't responsible. He's been salviated by Mercury. And he brings witnesses. You comes, Tommy. And you says how you see me look bad before. And the doctor, he comes. And he says it's how he see me frightful. And the jury, without leaving their seats, brings in a verdict of justifiable insanity, salviated by Mercury. In the excitement of his climax, he had risen to his feet, but would have fallen had not Tommy caught him and led him into the open air. In this sharper light there was an odd change visible in his yellow-white face, a change which caused Tommy to hurriedly support him, half leading, half dragging him, toward the little cabin. When they had reached it, Tommy placed him on the rude bunk or shelf, and stood for a moment in anxious contemplation of the tremor-stricken man before him. Then he said rapidly, "'Listen, Uncle Ben, I'm going to town. To town, you understand?' for the doctor. You're not to get up or move on any account till I return, do you hear? Johnson nodded violently. I'll be back in two hours. In another moment he was gone. For an hour Johnson kept his word. Then he suddenly sat up and began to gaze fixedly at a corner of the cabin. From gazing at it he began to smile. From smiling at it he began to talk. From talking at it, he began to scream. From screaming, he passed to cursing and sobbing wildly. Then he lay quiet again. He was so still that to merely human eyes he might have seemed asleep or dead. But a squirrel that, emboldened by the stillness, had entered from the roof, stopped short upon a beam above the bunk, for he saw that the man's foot was slowly and cautiously moving toward the floor and that the man's eyes were as intent and watchful as his own. Presently, still without a sound, both feet were upon the floor. And then the bunk creaked, and the squirrel whisked into the eaves of the roof. When he peered forth again, everything was quiet, and the man was gone. An hour later, two muleteers on the Placerville Road passed a man with disheveled hair, glaring bloodshot eyes, and clothes torn with bramble and stained with the red dust of the mountain. They pursued him when he turned fiercely on the foremost, wrested a pistol from his grasp, and broke away. Later still, 
when the sun had dropped behind Payne's Ridge, the underbrush on Deadwood Slope crackled with a stealthy but continuous tread. It must have been an animal whose dimly outlined bulk, in the gathering darkness, showed here and there in vague but incessant motion. It could be nothing but an animal whose utterance was at once so incoherent, monotonous, and unremitting. Yet, when the sound came nearer, and the chaparral was parted, it seemed to be a man, and that man, Johnson. Above the baying of phantasmal hounds that pressed him hard and drove him on, with never rest nor mercy, above the lashing of a spectral whip that curled about his limbs, sang in his ears, and continually stung him forward, above the outcries of the unclean shapes that thronged about him, he could still distinguish one real sound, the rush and sweep of hurrying waters. The Stanislaus River, a thousand feet below him, drove its yellowing current. Through all the vacillations of his unseated mind he had clung to one idea, to reach the river, to lave in it, to swim it if need be, but to put it forever between him and the harrying shapes, to drown forever in its turbid depths the thronging specters, to wash away in its yellow flood all stains and color of the past. And now he was leaping from boulder to boulder, from blackened stump to stump, from gnarled bush to bush, caught for a moment and withheld by clinging vines, or plunging downward into dusty hollows, until, rolling, dropping, sliding, and stumbling, he reached the river bank, whereon he fell, rose, staggered forward, and fell again with outstretched arms upon a rock that breasted the swift current. And there he lay as dead. A few stars came out hesitatingly above Deadwood Slope. A cold wind that had sprung up with the going down of the sun fanned them into momentary brightness, swept the heated flanks of the mountain, and ruffled the river. Where the fallen man lay there was a sharp curve in the stream, so that in the gathering shadows the rushing water seemed to leap out of the darkness and to vanish again decayed driftwood, trunks of trees, fragments of broken sluicing, the wash and waste of many a mile, swept into sight a moment and were gone. All of decay, wreck and foulness, gathered in the long circuit of mining camp and settlement, all the dregs and refuse of a crude and wanton civilization, reappeared for an instant, and then were hurried away in the darkness and lost. No wonder that, as the wind ruffled the yellow waters, the waves seemed to lift their unclean hands toward the rock whereon the fallen man lay, as if eager to snatch him from it too, and hurry him toward the sea. It was very still. In the clear air a horn blown a mile away was heard distinctly. The jingling of a spur and a laugh on the highway over Payne's Ridge sounded clearly across the river. The rattling of harness and hoofs foretold for many minutes the approach of the Wingdom coach, that at last, with flashing lights, passed within a few feet of the rock. Then, for an hour, all again was quiet. Presently the moon, round and full, 
lifted herself above the serried ridge and looked down upon the river. At first the bared peak of Deadwood Hill gleamed white and skull-like. Then the shadows of Payne's Ridge cast on the slope slowly sank away, leaving the unshapely stumps, the dusty fissures, and clinging outcrop of Deadwood Slope to stand out in black and silver. Still stealing softly downward, the moonlight touched the bank and the rock, and then glittered brightly on the river. The rock was bare, and the man was gone, but the river still hurried swiftly to the sea. "'Is there anything for me?' asked Tommy Islington, as, a week after, the stage drew up at the mansion-house, and Bill slowly entered the barroom. Bill did not reply, but, turning to a stranger who had entered with him, indicated with the jerk of his finger the boy. The stranger turned with an air half of business, half of curiosity, and looked critically at Tommy. "'Is there anything for me?' repeated Tommy, a little confused at the silence and scrutiny. Bill walked deliberately to the bar, and, placing his back against it, faced Tommy with a look of demure enjoyment. "'If,' he remarked slowly, "'if a hundred thousand dollars down and a half a million in perspective is anything, Major, there is.'" End of chapter 1, part 1